Well, good morning to you. Great to have you here. If you are a guest with us, uh, my name is Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossridge. So glad that you decided to join us uh, this morning. Uh, before we get going, just a couple things, a couple uh, sort of family-type announcements for you, and then uh, one other uh, prayer-focused item for you, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Um, just a couple family things for you. One is to let you know Thomas and Megan Schmidt. Many of you know Thomas and Megan. Thomas is one of our ushers here. Uh, they had a little baby boy on Friday, uh, Wesley, and so we're excited for them. If you know them, reach out, say hi, and congratulate them. And then uh, also to let you know, we let our youth know this, but on Monday, Tuesday, Monday, something like that of this week, uh, we hired A.J. Martin to be our new uh, Director of Youth Ministries, Youth and Young Adults. So uh, A.J.'s across the street helping with youth now, kind of internal hire. He's been here, uh, him and Lindsay have been here the last two years. Lindsay was leading worship for us this morning, and uh, so great that he's joining our team in a formal way. We're excited about that. Uh, and then just at, each week we take time to, uh, to pray into something different, something happening in our world or in our church or, um, or just something, some biblical concern. And this morning, I just want to read for you a couple of verses out of Matthew 19, pray and also give you an announcement. So you're kind of getting like a three for one this morning, but uh, let me read to you from uh, Matthew chapter 19 and... Uh, And this is when the religious leaders had come to Jesus asking him about divorce. It says that, and then Pharisees came up to him and and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And those verses, I read them just because uh, we are, uh, I mean, marriage is, is a difficult thing at times, and there's lots of challenges that come around marriage. And as a church, we want to do what we can to help build and foster strong marriages. One of the things we do each year uh, in February is we do a marriage event type thing. Uh, we just call it date night, and it is happening on February the 10th. So I would encourage you, whatever stage of marriage you're at as a couple, this is a great thing to be part of. You have, uh, we do an afternoon, afternoon activity. There are five different options that you can sign up for. So you can go uh, bouldering if you're into that sort of thing. You can do painting. You can do salsa dancing. Um, I think that's what I, I, I don't know. I don't really, I was asking, is that the one with the, the things you click? Is that, probably not. Anyway, um, you can do, there's a couple of curling and there's something else, coffee and hangout time. Sign up for one of those. You'll be in a group of eight or 10 other couples. Uh, and then after that, we'll have dinner across the street at the square. We have a, a great Greek dinner that's being catered for us. So it's going to be a great time. I think it's, I think it's $50 a couple. Um, it'll be fantastic. So I want to encourage you, wherever you're at in your marriage, come to that, be encouraged. Uh, we get some practical encouragement uh, on that evening as well. So let me just pray about that, and then we'll open God's Word together. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We think of uh, many examples of that. We think of uh, Thomas and Megan being blessed with a little uh, baby boy this week, and we're, um, 
we're excited for them. We pray for great joy and, and uh, some rest this week and, and all of that uh, adjustment as a family. Those things, we just pray your protection on them. Uh, we thank you for AJ and Lindsay and their family and bringing them here and for AJ now joining our team. We pray this is a great, fruitful uh, season uh, of ministry among us. Uh, we pray for marriages. Lord, I pray for the marriages represented in our church. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that um, uh, couples would make good investments into their marriage and do things that help foster and build that and, and take our sense of responsibility. And now, Lord, we just pray for your word. We thank you for it, and we pray as we open it that we would behold wonderful things from your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 5. So we are back to our study of the book of Acts after about a month away from it, some Christmas stuff, kind of a New Year's uh, mini series that we did. But now we're back into Acts chapter 5, and I'm excited to be back in it. Um, just to refresh your memory, because it's basically been a month, I want to read for you the section where we left off in Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Those verses say this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So when we left off, we left off right there. And when we left off, everything was going great. The church was growing. The church was unified. The church was generous. They were meeting all sorts of practical needs. And if you were writing a fairy tale account of the church's history, you would put the words, and they all lived happily ever after, right after verse 37 of chapter 4. But this is not a fairy tale account of the church's history. And the very first word that comes after verse 37 is the first word of chapter 5, and that word is, but. There's always a but, isn't there? And I think at the very least, this account that we're going to look at today should make us appreciate Luke's honesty as a historian. Luke is not giving us an account of the early church where all of the bad characters and all of the scandals have been edited out. So we're looking at Acts chapter 5, and we're concentrating on verses 1 to 11 this morning. Follow along as I read these verses. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property... And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have committed this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, this is kind of a a famous or infamous Bible story. Uh, It's certainly a memorable one. When we read a story like this, the most basic question we can ask is, what is it about? What are we supposed to learn from this account? Is this just sort of a moralistic tale, right, that tells us you should not lie or you might get struck by lightning? Or you really should not hold back on your giving because you might experience grave consequences. Is that the point of this story? Spoiler alert, it's not. But I do think this is one of those passages where it's really helpful to have read what has come before it. Now, in saying that, I don't just mean the passage that's immediately preceding this one, the passage I read from Acts 4, although I think that is helpful because there is a clear contrast between that passage and this one. That passage highlighted the generosity of the early church and especially the generosity of one individual in particular, a man named Joseph or Barnabas. And we are supposed to contrast that generous act of worship with this duplicitous act of Ananias and Sapphira. But actually, there are similarities between this story and a number of stories that came before, a number of stories from the Old Testament. In many ways, this story is an echo of the story we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where we read about the sin of another couple, Adam and Eve. And this story, like that one, has these features, the temptation of Satan, the disruption of peace and harmony, a couple conspiring against God, an intent to deceive when confronted, and an expulsion at the end of the narrative. The account in Genesis 3 is the account of the first sin in paradise, and the account here in Acts 5 is actually the account of the first sin in the church. And if you keep reading in Genesis, if you read into chapter 4, you will find the story of Cain and Abel, where Abel offers to God a better sacrifice than his brother Cain does. There's a contrast between their offerings, just as there's a contrast between what Barnabas did and what Ananias and Sapphira did. So there are themes in this story that can be found all through the Bible. There are are lots of stories that have lots of similarities with this one. So we could think about what happened almost immediately after the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. 
The Israelites were given clear instructions about destroying everything, not taking gold and silver from the Canaanites. Here's what we read in Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, if you know the history of that, Joshua was Israel's leader at this time, and the Lord revealed to Joshua that someone had done what they ought not to do and had kept some of those devoted things for themselves. So they made a search for the guilty party by going tribe by tribe and clan by clan and family by family all through the nation of Israel until they landed on one man in particular, a man by the name of Achan. And here's what it says later in Joshua 7. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Israel, son of Zerah, and the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them over Achan. They heaped up a large pile of rocks which remains to this day, the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So Ananias and Sapphira, like Achan, served as a warning to this newly formed community that nothing is hidden from the eyes of God, that your sins will find you out. And as we work our way through this passage in Acts chapter 5, I want to draw your attention to at least three things that I think we're supposed to learn from it. Firstly, we are supposed to understand something about the manifold nature and severity of sin. Now, sin is a multifaceted thing. I mean, on the one hand, we could define sin, sin simply as a rebellion against our Creator, But there is a complexity to sin. And I'm referring to it here as the manifold nature of sin. So if we were to just ask the question, what was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, as I see it, I think there's at least three dimensions to it. The first one is that there is some element of a financial sin. And one interesting note from this passage is that it contains the very first occurrence of the word church in the book of Acts. You see it in verse 11 where it says, And great fear came upon the whole church. Now, I point that out simply because it's interesting that the very first sin mentioned in the context of the church in the book of Acts was connected to money. Now, I I think we all know that financial scandals have not disappeared from the church Unfortunately, there is a history of financial scandals that have plagued the church in every generation. And there is some connection to money or finances in what Ananias and Sapphira did here. But what was the specific nature of their transgression in, with regard to finances? I mean, Peter's questions to Ananias make it clear they were under no obligation to sell their property or to give any of the proceeds to the church, let alone all of them. Right, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And even after you sold it, wasn't it at your disposal? But interestingly, the word that Peter uses to describe Ananias' actions, which is translated as kept back, 
It's used in verse 2 and, and again in verse 3. That word is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used in Titus chapter 2, and there it's translated as steal. So some scholars suggest, well, maybe Ananias and Sapphira had entered into some kind of agreement with the church, and we're now reneging on that. It'd be something like requesting a tax receipt for an amount that you didn't actually give. Now, it's, there's a bit of speculation. I don't think we can know for sure. But I think we can see that there's an element of greed involved in what they did. Luke mentions that Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And Peter uses almost the exact same phrase when he says, you kept back for yourself this money. So I don't know what the precise details were with regard to their handling of this money, how much they kept back or or whatever. What I do know is that it is good for us to remind ourselves of the dangers associated with greed. It's good to remember, for example, that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. It's good to remember that Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's good to remember the warning that the Apostle Paul gave us when he said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So one aspect of what they did was some connection with with finances and money, and we ought to be aware that that's a temptation that faces every one of us. But a second dimension or layer to their sin was a connection with deception or lying or hypocrisy. And this is the most obvious aspect of what Ananias and Sapphira did. Their sin wasn't so much holding back some of the proceeds from the sale of their property, but pretending that they were more generous than they were. I mean, they saw what Joseph did or what Barnabas did. They saw the notoriety that he gained and they wanted in on that. So they actually conspired together to do what they did. They planned to deceive the members of the early church with a fake show of generosity. So their motivation might have been partly finances, but it seems like part of it was more than that. It was the notoriety that they might gain. Now, maybe that seems like a strange motivation for you. I mean, after all, they did give some of the money, but it's actually not all that uncommon. Uh, One of the podcasts that I listened to this summer was called Scamanda. And the name came from a clever combination of the word scam and the name Amanda. So I took the title for this sermon, Scamanias and Scamphira. Pretty, pretty clever, I know. Um, from that podcast, from the title of that podcast. Now, the Amanda in Scamanda was a woman named Amanda Riley from San Jose, California. And in 2014, she started a blog detailing her cancer journey. She posted pictures of herself with a shaved head from her hospital bed and from the cancer, different cancer treatment clinics. Over the course of seven years, she raised upwards of $400,000 to help offset the cost of her cancer treatment. And she became something of a celebrity among cancer support groups. Lots of people bought Team Amanda t-shirts and wore them with pride. 
She was invited as a special guest to concerts, to sporting events, and to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. She was a professing Christian. She was an active part of her church. Her church actually had special prayer services for her. She shared her testimony on many occasions about perseverance in suffering and about healing. The only problem was she never had cancer. She made the whole thing up. Now, I don't know if it's because I have a bit of a criminal mind or something, but the whole time I listened to it, I was thinking, okay, well, given all the trouble that she went to to perpetuate this hoax over seven years, it doesn't seem like $400,000 is worth it. You could have just gone and gotten a good-paying job. But finances alone don't really account for why people do what they do. And the motivation for Ananias and Sapphira to do what they did was more than money. The public nature of their act of generosity, right? They came and they took this money, they laid it at the apostles' feet for everyone to see. That was part and parcel of their sin. And sin is always like that. There's a complexity to it. There's layers to it. Here, there's a mixture, oddly, of greed and the desire to be known as generous. That taking place at the same time. And philanthropy can sometimes be a cover for something more sinister. But whatever their motivation for what they did, their deception is treated as a serious sin. Peter's specific words to Ananias were, you have not lied to men, but to God. And what he says to Sapphira is, how is it that you conspire together to test the spirit of the Lord? Now, I told you at the outset, this is not just a moralistic tale about lying, but it should remind us that God hates lying. Twice in the book of Proverbs, we find verses like this one in Proverbs 12, which says the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. The psalmist said it this way, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. And the book of Revelation reminds us about the severity of lying when it says this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice ma- magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But what Ananias and Sapphira did was not just sort of, you know, lying in general. There, there's kind of a third dimension to it. Theirs was a particular kind of deception. One commentator put it this way, this is not merely a private transgression, but an improper temple offering. Their sin was what Jesus pronounced woes upon, external righteousness without internal heart change. Now we're going to see more of this in a few minutes, but the the background of the temple offering is actually a, a really helpful thing to understand for properly understanding this story. So we could classify what they did as false worship. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about that as well. We'll get into why their sin was judged so severely in a few minutes. But for now, it's just good to remember that God takes no delight in false worship. God takes no delight when we honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. So the first thing we learn about is the manifold nature of sin and the severity of sin. The second thing we learn about is the malevolence of Satan. Listen again to what Peter says in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself some of the proceeds of the land? So while Ananias and Sapphira were individually responsible for their actions, Satan was the one whispering in their ears. And I point this out because sometimes I think we forget that we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Satan's intentions were about more than just devouring Ananias and Sapphira. Earlier I mentioned the parallels between this account and the story of Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. One of the points of comparison between the two stories is that both stories show the people of God in their inception or in their infancy, right? In the book of Joshua, the Israelites have just crossed into the promised land. They've just kind of become a nation. They had survived threats from the outside. And now the sin of Achan threatened to undermine them from the inside. In the same way, when we come to Acts chapter 5, we understand that the New Testament church had just been born. Acts chapter 4, we read about the arrest of Peter and John. Threats from the leaders from the outside. And now they're faced with a different kind of threat, a threat from the inside. And we could label that the threat of internal corruption. And that threat, while perpetrated by Ananias and Sapphira, was a manifestation of Satan's hatred for Jesus and the church. In fact, every attack on the church is ultimately satanic in its origin. Think about this encounter that we read in Matthew 16, where it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed And on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, and Jesus detects in Peter's words something much bigger than just sort of a philosophical disagreement over ministry philosophy. He identifies Peter's opposition as originating with Satan. It's kind of ironic that it's Peter, right? Because here he is now in Acts chapter 5, and he sees something just as sinister, sinister lying behind what Ananias and and Sapphira have conspired to do. We see something similar when we look at Judas. 
So John tells us that Judas used to help himself to the money bag at times, and we know that he received payment for betraying Jesus. But we shouldn't forget this description from the Gospel of Luke of what happened. Here's what we read there. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. So Judas acted of his own volition, and was judged for it. But at the same time, he was also an instrument of Satan's attempts to destroy Jesus. And I'm just reminding you that Satan has not changed missions. He is still just as intent on devouring Christians and destroying the church. We might not always be aware of it, but behind every attack on the church is the diabolical plan of the devil. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he refers to false teaching and false teachers that have infiltrated the church, he refers to their teaching as the doctrine of demons. So I'm not suggesting we ought to look for the devil under every rock, but we should be aware that we are in a spiritual battle, that we have an enemy who will use all different forms of attack, threats of persecution from the outside, temptations of corruption from the inside and a host of other means to destroy the church. That's what I mean by the malevolence of Satan. The third thing we learn about here is the judgment of God. So lots of people read this story and they think it is overly harsh. So obviously Ananias and Sapphira perpetuated a lie, but where's the grace in the story? I mean, for that, they're struck dead on the spot. It seems like divine overkill. And some interpreters have tried to soften the blow a little bit by saying, well, Ananias and Sapphira actually died of a heart attack after being put under the psychological pressure that was applied by Peter. Look, it it might have been a heart attack because we don't read about a bolt of lightning from the sky. But whatever the autopsy might have revealed about their cause of death, it seems pretty clear we are supposed to understand it as the result of the judgment of God. And again, I think it's important for us to remember that this is not the only time we read about something like this in the Bible. There's a few other occasions where God strikes someone dead on the spot, and interestingly, they also occur in a worshiping or offering sacrifice kind of context. So think about the story of Uzzah from the book of 2 Samuel. God had prescribed some very specific regulations about how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be handled and transported. And the Israelites didn't exactly follow that according to the letter of the law. They instead built a cart for it. And here's what we read happened as they were seeking to transport it. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God. And that represented God's presence because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, I I know, super encouraging stories today, right? But stories like that, which might make us uncomfortable, are actually good ones for us to keep in mind. 
And part of the reason for that is because they remind us that the way God is portrayed in the Bible actually goes against the grain of human preferences. I mean, we would have never invented a God like this. As one commentator put it, anyone who says the God of the Bible is merely a projection of our wish fulfillment has not read the Bible, right? Who comes up with that? But even more than that, I think stories like this remind us that God is not to be trifled with. We're not to treat his presence lightly. God is not our warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. Now, I know I'm giving you a heavy dose of the Old Testament this morning, but there are so many fascinating parallels. That account that I read you about Uzzah from 2 Samuel chapter 6 follows on the heels of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Maybe that's not surprising. But what happened in 2 Samuel 5 is that the Israelites won a major military victory over the Philistines. Everything was going well. And then Uzzah touches the ark and is struck dead. And the lessons that the Israelites needed to learn was that the main thing for the life of God's people is not who is against us, but who is among us. Who is the God with whom we have to do? And that's the same thing we're supposed to learn from Acts chapter 5. In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested and released and then threatened. They win a victory of sorts. But then comes the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And the main thing is not who is against us, but who is among us. So while we don't need to live in fear of those who might be against us, the authorities... We should keep the fear of God before us at all times. And that's important for the church in every age to remember. So there's another story because I know you want another good judgment story. But this one's an even closer parallel for for a couple of reasons. We find this one in, in Leviticus chapter 10. And this one calls to mind what I said earlier about this not just being a private sin, but connected to an improper temple offering. Here's what we read in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, whatever that strange fire or unauthorized fire was exactly, it was enough to warrant God's instantaneous judgment. There's a a detail in our passage that makes this connection between the two passages even more clear. Notice what it says in verse 6 of our passage. It says, The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Okay, then in verse 10. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Why does Luke tell us that? Why does he give us that detail? Now, it could be that he's just reporting the details of what happened, and he is doing that. But but I think he's doing more than that. So listen now to what it says in Leviticus chapter 10, after Nadab and Abihu were consumed by God's judgment in fire. It says, Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle, Aziel, And said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. 
So they came and carried them still in their tunics outside the camp as Moses ordered. Why did Moses order that they would be carried outside the camp and buried outside the camp? Well, the reason was a public demonstration that the tabernacle or the temple was not to be defiled by what is unholy. And the story in Acts chapter 5 teaches us the same thing. God desires holiness among his people, among the church. And he will purge it of that which is unholy. So what is our response supposed to be to a passage like this? Well, I think it's supposed to be the same response that the church had that the early church had. Notice now what it says in verses 5 and 11. So when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear came upon the whole church. Now, the Greek words translated great fear are Greek words that you know. Megas and phobos. Mega fear. That's what gripped the church. Not of the authorities, but great fear of God. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is supposed to remind us of something we conveniently and deliberately forget that God does execute judgment on sin. Now, we might not always see the execution of that judgment right away, but that shouldn't make us any less fearful. So I'm going to read a longer quote for you. This one comes from John Chrysostom. He was one of the church fathers way back in the 4th century. And this quote is part of his sermon on this passage in Acts chapter 5. Listen carefully to what he said. He said, for those who often sin and are not punished have greater reason to fear and dread. For the vengeance is increased for them by their present impunity and the long-suffering of God. Let each consider when he commits such sins. Many like things are done now as were done before the flood, yet no flood has been sent. Because there is a hell threatened and vengeance. Many sin as the people in Sodom, yet no rain of fire has been poured down because a river of fire is prepared. Many go to the lengths of Pharaoh. They have not fared like Pharaoh. They have not been drowned in the Red Sea. For the sea that awaits them is the sea of the bottomless pit. Many have offended like the Israelites, but no serpents have devoured them. There awaits them the worm that never dieth. Therefore, When you see anything happening to you, call to mind that particular sin of yours. God sets thee a time in which to wash yourself clean. But if thou persist, at last he will send down the vengeance. You have seen the fate of liars. Now, I know that this is a a heavy note, right? Especially to end on this kind of note. I mean, this is the judgment of God. Where's the grace? Where's the good news? Well, I think that's always a good question to ask. Any passage that we read. 
But I also think it's important not to try to blunt the force of what the Bible says to us here. And we don't talk much in our day about the fear of God. We, we tend to say things like, well, fear doesn't really mean fear. It means respect. Really? I mean, is that the sense you get from reading this passage? Great respect fell on the church. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I do want to bring, having said all that, I do want to bring one reminder to you, and that reminder is, this is not all bad news, is that Ananias and Sapphira were not judged because they were imperfect or because they were sinners. They were judged because they were imposters. They pretended to be something they were not. And see, the Bible tells us that our only sure hope is not to present our best acts of charity before the world. Look at my philanthropy. Look at my generosity. Look at all the good things that I've done in the hopes of getting applause from people. The Bible tells us that our only sure hope is to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. It is to say, oh Lord, I know what I'm capable of. I know the evil intentions that lie within my heart and that there but for the grace of God go I. I could do what they did and more and yet I know that it is the sacrifice of Jesus and only the sacrifice of Jesus that makes me right in your sight. That is our hope. That is the gospel. Now I think it's fitting for us this morning to move right into a time of communion together. And I want to read for you verses from 1 Corinthians 11. But they're the verses we often don't read when we come to communion. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we we may not be condemned along with the world. So we're not playing church, right? We're not just going through the motions of come to the Lord's table and just do it because it's what we do, and we just pretend everything's fine. It's good for us to examine ourselves. So I'm going to give you just a moment now, just in the quietness of where you're seated, just to examine your own heart, to do business with God. If there is sin you need to confess, to confess that before the Lord and to just remind yourself of the grace that we find in Jesus. It's because of what he's done that we have forgiveness and we can confess our sins openly before him, not in the fear of judgment, but in the knowledge of, that we're under his grace. So go ahead and do that, and then we'll, you can come forward as the band plays and, and take the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood.